So Sene from Just Dig It. The way I, I actually heard about your organization was a few years ago. I think in 2017, I have a, a Dutch colleague who's interested in sustainability working near Amsterdam, and he was talking about the interesting thing you, your organization is doing. But can you give me a rundown of just how this all started, when it started, and, and sort of where the path is heading? Uh, yes, of course. It started back in 2010, so that's already, well, almost 20 years ago. And it started with Dennis and Peter Westerveld, so that's our those are the founders of Just Dig It. And Peter Westerveld, he, is, uh, he was an artist. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2014, so uh, six years ago. Uh, he was an artist and he grew up um, yeah, most of his youth in Kenya with because his father worked over there. And he saw the drop over there and he was like, okay, we need to do something about it. And he had an idea um, how he could do that. And that was called the Hydrological Corridor. And he made a whole art piece of it and all thought it through. Um, and he wanted to put it in work, but... To put it in work, you need uh, also funding. So that's where Dennis came uh, came in the picture. He's really familiar with setting up NGOs and, or really familiar, he did it before and he had a great network and great ideas. And he really is, if you want to make something big and known, Dennis is your man. He has great ideas and he yeah, translated well into action. So they started working together and that was basically the start of uh, Just Dig It. Uh, what good is to mention uh, is that it first was called Nega Foundation, so it had another name. Hmm. Uh, Just Dig It was one of their campaigns, and the name did it so well in the campaign that they decided, okay, maybe we should call it Just Dig It. So um, that's where the name Just Dig It also came from. It was not originally the name of the organization, but it was a campaign, and now uh, it's the name of the organization as well. So that's basically the start, and that's where it's heading from, from uh, that basis. So the first projects were also in Kenya, and yeah, it was really about how to bring back green, but also how to restore the wa water cycle over there. So bring more water into the ground, but also in the air, so that more rains will come, and um, because... Yeah, the past couple of years are due to climate change and everything, the warming of the earth, also the rains have declined. So uh, it was also based on bringing back rain. So yeah, that's basically the basis of Just Dig It. And from there on, it grew and grew. And uh, yeah, first back in 2000, no one was busy with climate change and no one was thinking about it. People, Some people knew it was there, but yeah, it was not a hot topic. And so in the beginning... Um, and that's Dennis also telling still that it was really a call in the desert because nobody hmm. yeah, really knew about it. And now since like the last couple of years, we really are growing and growing because yeah, climate change is a thing and more and more people are becoming aware of that. So that's really nice. And it's also really nice um, that more and more people see the urge to, uh, to change it and to take action. So that's, yeah, that's basically the beginning. And How long have you been on the, the team? Um, not that long, basically, uh, actually. I started with an 
uh, internship almost two years ago mm. for five months. And yeah, that was really nice. And from both sides, it's, uh, it really clicked. So uh, after I graduated, I started working at Justicket. So I worked there for, officially worked there for more than a year right now. Uh, but in total, it's almost two years because I already did my internship for five. Mm-hmm. And what's the, what's the nature of the team? Because it seems like sort of, um, I mean, I was sifting through the bios and everything, and it seemed like a very startup kind of youth, vibrant and, and energy embedded into it. it where, where are people coming from into the team generally? Basically everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's the answer. No, um, it's correct. We are really, it's more a startup vibe than an NGO vibe. That's uh, also what everyone hmm. in team likes about Just Dig It. And also I like about Just Dig It because NGOs do have the image to be a bit like, I don't know, really big and you don't know where the money is going. And that's totally not how Just Dig It is working because we are still really small and we are not planning to grow really, really big. We are more planning to grow big in the African countries than to grow big in our main office in Amsterdam. Because if you can keep it small, then you really know where the money is going and how the money will be divided. So that is really nice. Yeah, it's really the people are what I said are basically coming from every part of the business world. They are mainly coming from commercial companies. So they started their career as more commercial uh, companies and got a lot of experience over there and then thought, okay, yeah, this is really nice, but what am I exactly doing? Mm. And that point where they thought, okay, I want to do something more with a purpose. And then they came to just dig it mostly via our own network. There are a lot of people who have a great network in the media world or in the business world and via via the team has come together. So there is a lot of experience on different areas in business, in media, in communication, in uh, also on the project side. In we have uh, a colleague of mine is has graduated on hydrology, so that's really the more project side of mm. of it. So yeah, that's basically where the strength also from just dig it lies that there are a lot of really experienced people who really know what they are doing and they are putting their experience into a good cause. And I, I was reading um, it. So the, the there's one article on your website talking about the I think it's called the Indian Dipole or something like this. But because of the I guess a hotter water temperature in one part of the ocean and a cooler temperature in another part of the ocean, actually p- portions of Africa are receiving yeah. more rainfall than typical. And it sounds like the um, little how do you pronounce it bund or bund what's the bund yeah we call it a bund yeah yeah the buns you're digging are actually you know they're both operate pretty well in terms of drought and in terms of flood it sounds like yeah yeah so is this the the one i had studied a few years ago the sort of dutch tradition of land forming in, in terms of polders in terms of I, I guess a lot of netherlands is built upon sort of this marshy wet you know soil and you have to dig it and, and establish sort of wet zones and dry zones for it to work so is this i mean is this a legacy of that sort of the dutch ingenuity around landforming and and water hydrological sort of expertise being brought to africa no not really most of the techniques we use in our project area so also the buns are really traditional techniques which are Mm. 
were already used in those yeah in those countries uh, but they are forgotten so what we always do is that when we start a project uh, we always work together with local NGOs who have who are also busy with uh, nature conservation and uh, we work together with them one because they know a lot of the area so they know what the area needs mm. and two because they know the local communities where we want to work together with also the buns are coming from more a perspective okay from looking to the area okay what can we do over there and what are the techniques already existing that we can use over there but they are not really found in the netherlands no interesting yeah so is the but the connection back to africa then is through this initial founder having a sort of kenyan upbringing is that the huh? yeah yeah and we have a lot of the people who are working at just Dicket right now they are really have experience also back in their careers uh, a lot of experience in africa itself and the other reason that we are now uh, based in africa is that in africa there is uh, a lot of land that can be restored so there is a possibility to make a big impact in a short time and that's really what we re- need right now because we do not have a lot of time uh, a lot of time anymore so yeah the opportunities over there are really big so that's why uh, why we also choose to remain our focus on africa for now and are the networks you're working with sort of um, an extension off of the initial network in kenya or is it hopping through word of mouth across the the continent i don't know exactly i think it's more that we or we looked on forehand okay where are the areas we can regreen and which areas can yeah are suitable for regreening and then we looked okay what local partners are active or what local ngos are already active over there and then connected with them so that's it's not from a, from it's not that we looked first at the ngos who worked over there but first looked at okay the area which areas could be interesting and then looking okay are there hmm. partners possible partners who could help us with this on the ground and are you looking on a, on a continental scale I mean, are you sort of hunting for prime areas to revitalize biodiversity and hydrological cycles on a... I mean, are you limiting yourself to a specific region of Africa or is it really thinking of Africa Africa as a a continent? For now, we are active only in Kenya and Tanzania, so the east of Africa. Hmm. And we are expanding together with two other NGOs to uh, two other countries in East Africa. But we we are really focused on the whole continent of Africa. Because our idea is that next to our underground projects, that we also can inspire and activate a lot of farmers all over Africa to start regreening themselves, and that is not limited to the countries where we have underground projects. So how you could see it is that our underground projects are really a kind of lab testing what works, what does not work, and also a showcase of what does work for the rest of Africa. So we can use those projects to show other farmers or other people in the rest of Africa, hey, look, what we are doing is working and it's only benefiting your farm and hmm. yeah, the quality of your soil. So yeah, ultimately, our goal is to activate and inspire millions and millions of farmers in Africa all over. Hmm. In, in architecture, there's a term called a post-occupancy evaluation where it's a very sort of strangely technical 
term, but basically once you build a building, you go back and revisit it to see if it's actually living up to your expectations. And this is something in mm-hmm. architecture that actually for a long time wasn't so often used. It was sort of um, you had an idea about the building, you build it and then you just let it go and nobody ever analyzed actually what happens. For your the buns and the project specifically, so how 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 long of a evaluation period are you keeping up? Are you are you for instance looking at the first projects you've done still and seeing how they're performing? Yes, our pro- yeah, it depends on the project, but normally we are really active in a project area for a couple of years. So hmm. most of the time, two, three years to really set up the project and make sure that also the local communities are well trained to also maintain the green that is brought back because that is, of course, one of the most important things. It's nice that there is green, that the green is brought back, but it also needs to remain over there. And so the local communities need to learn and need to be trained how to maintain their green. So that's most of the time is that's two, three years that we really are on the ground busy with regreening and also teaching the local communities how to maintain the area green. And after that, there is a sustainability phase and that is longer. So then it's not really hands-on that we are busy with regreening, but more how to keep it green. And this is also the period where we still do the monitoring monitoring and evaluation and also we do that in the first two three years but with regreening yeah the most of the results are yeah more coming over time because then the benefits of uh, taking carbon out of the air water into the soil Mm. are becoming more clear so yeah we revisit or yeah the project we remain revisiting the project to monitor and evaluate them so what's involved in the maintenance i was curious about this so it seems like um i mean you see the photos and it's quite remarkable i know some like the the question is always well how does it compare to a sort of non-impacted landscape in terms of the dry period versus the wet period but even with the buns you can quite see that the portions that you've dug have you know really greened in a in a fantastic way you know this you see this vast amount of biodiversity and, and grasses and so forth embedded into it and in the portions you haven't dug buns in are a bit more um, still have that sort of clay like quality into the soil but what's involved in the in the maintenance do you have to redig the bun do you have to is it a matter of how to graze livestock or how to farm with it or how to be stewards of the land what's 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 equated in that um or what's included in the main maintenance phase yeah basically we are not digging any buns any further so what we see with the buns or what happens with the buns that the regreening first starts within the buns because that's the place where the water sink in and also the seeds get the water so begin to sprout because but as soon as the green is coming back in the buns also outside of the buns uh, green is coming back because the vegetation spreads and also Hmm. uh, the roots of the vegetation is making the soil more do you say it porous yeah yeah so water can infiltrate the soil also better outside of the buns so that way the area can regreen as a whole so that's really nice and to maintain the area that green so we teach the farmers yeah or we learn the farmers how to do grazing management that's one of the most important ones because one of the reasons that the area areas became that bare and dry is overgrazing so we learn them in which seasons they can let their livestock go into the regreened areas but they also learn in which seasons they don't need to do that because otherwise the vegetation will go back or will not 
not grow back anymore. So that's one thing. And another thing is, let me think also, yeah, how to farm sustainably and that's that kind of stuff. So it's yeah, more basically teaching the farmers how to uh, how to maintain the area. Green. And what's the um, in the area that you dig buns in? Does it directly transform into grazing land to farming land, or is it sort of um, a rich biodiverse zone that then begins to impact surrounding areas? And the surrounding areas are where they, you know, uh, where agriculture and, and livestock—I forget grazing, shepherding—I'm not sure the mm-hmm. husbandry uh, uh, takes place. What's what's the um, how, uh, what happens to the bun area? Is it actively used or kept as a reservoir of sorts? I think both. It's also actively used as grazing area um, because uh, the Maasai people just travel around and see where their livestock can graze. So that's basically everywhere. It's not like that area is for grazing and that area is for farming or the other way around. Mm. They just travel and see where their uh, livestock can graze. But what is important in our uh, bund areas is that there are laws or bylaws made that about when people can get their livestock over there or let their livestock graze over there and when they can't and the idea is that if we have an area regreened that it indeed also spreads to the areas outside because when there is more green there also there are more seeds and it can spread really easy easily to also outside the bent areas um yeah in terms of learning process i mean what's the i mean i'm sure you've had successes and less successes what's the trials and tribulations that you've encountered with whether it's technical ones or sort of getting community support or enacting policies what's been the uh, learning curve for the organization yeah that's really different uh because sometimes we also had yeah we still have them um we also have fenced areas so that uh, farmers know okay at this point we cannot go and graze over there but there are for example elephants who are mm. who are breaking through the fences so then the area is still destroyed by the elephants and then yeah that so that's indeed something some things we encounter just yeah, we also have to deal with wildlife in the area. So uh, it, it's really nice that they are coming back because how more vegetation there is, how more the life, uh, life further wildlife will come back. But yeah, there are also uh, some downsides uh, of it. Uh, so that's that, those are things that we encounter. And sometimes also the communities do still graze in areas where they are not allowed to graze. So we do have rangers in the burnt areas to remind the people, okay, this is an area where you can't graze right now. And also, it's also nice for the wildlife on the other end because they can also prevent uh, poachers to come to the area and shoot wildlife. So it's a, it's a two-way around. Um, but yeah, sometimes still farmers or communities, community members go to the areas and do let their livestock graze over there. So yeah, you always see those things happen. Um, and we really try to learn them that regreening the area is good and to realize that when they let the area be for now and do not let their livestock graze over there it will mean that in a while they can let their livestock graze over there and that will there will be more food for the livestock so that's really something you need to yeah need to teach the communities but sometimes it's also hard for them to because it's something in the future it's it's far away from them for them and they are really looking at okay but right 
right now my livestock needs food. Mm. So how do you communicate that? So that's those are really challenging things, but just showing the good results is really, really, um, yeah, really helps us. And we also really aim to include the local communities in our projects. The bunts are not dug by us or our partner organization, but really by the local communities. So they really have ownership over their own land because it's not our land. It's not the land of our partner mm. uh, on the ground, but it's the land of the community. So that way we also aim to yeah, really make sure that they know and they still have ownership over their own land, but also know, okay, if we take care of it now in a while, it will benefit us. In terms of the, the communication too, is it the same strategy? I mean, are you or part of your team going there in person or do you often do that through a local person or a series of local organizations? How much of the Just Dig It team goes to, to Africa? Yeah, we, we do go there uh, once in a while. Right now, of course, no, not <laughs> possible anymore. Yeah, yeah. We, we go there once in a while, but the idea is that it's really managed on the ground so that we do not have to be there to manage the project or to to be involved in the day-to-day activities of the project. That's really um, where we have our local partners involved. But when we need to develop or set up a new project or something goes wrong, now that's not also, no, that's not really often the case. But most of the times we go there when something new needs to de- needs to be developed or some monitoring and evaluation needs to be done where we want to be there or that we want to use new techniques for the evaluation hmm, for troubleshooting right i mean you refine your techniques with each case study yeah, and so yeah, forth. yeah yes so for those things yes we go over there but we mainly try to manage the hmm. uh, projects locally because of course we are trying to beat climate change so it's not uh, right if you flew over there like all the time but uh, sometimes you just we just need to be there well it's an interesting one too in terms of just implementation because i assume if you go there in person and and are the person actively communicating it and actively engaging with the labor it probably gives a very different impression to the local community compared to if you have people already embedded within the community or ngos already in communication with the community behaving as those kind of persons right it's a there's a link there that you don't have to reinvent right you can you can sort of work with existing relationships and rather than trying to invent your own i suppose the climate change one is an interesting one because i mean the scale of the projects is quite intriguing like the it's a very low-tech approach right you're you're digging these holes essentially ditches in a way but you're doing quite a lot of them tens of thousands of them in a singular area and it sounds like there's a refinement of craft that's going into it right so with each project you're sort of troubleshooting evaluating and adopting those lessons for the next project the dilemma i suppose with climate change is you have to somehow act very large very quickly you know as we've been examining more and more over the years i suppose to have the impact that's required right but then if you do a very large-scale project and the craft isn't quite there then you may make a mistake and the mistake on a large scale becomes quite detrimental right so for yours your approach at just dig it what's the how do you balance that because there's this you want to get it right but you also have urgency behind you do you approach it very consciously on a project to project level or are you scaling up the projects in a very strategic manner what's the how do you manage those two tensions because it seems one is telling you to relax and take it step by step and the other one is saying we need to act now otherwise it's going to be too late that's indeed one of the dilemmas that is yeah which are on the table 
not really right now, but that's that is something we need to think about indeed, because what you already mentioned, we need to act really fast, really big. That's also the urge we are feeling because yeah, we know that climate change is there and it's becoming worse and worse before it becomes better. It's looking uh, that way right now. But it's also uh, nice to uh, know that what we are doing is really working and because we are doing it on a, such a large scale. Um, but what I already mentioned before is that the techniques we use are not invented by ourselves. So we use traditional techniques which are already used years and years and years ago um, and which have been proved to work to bring back the green. So that's I think a plus of the projects we are doing, it's not really inventing the techniques uh, to regreen, but it's really where to regreen and how fast can we do it. And also how can we maintain the regreened areas? I think that's our, those are the more challenging parts than really using the wrong techniques. Mm. And also what I said in the beginning, we do feel the urge to uh, regreen quickly. And that's also why we not only have on-the-ground projects, but also want to inspire and activate farmers all over Africa. So not only in our project areas, but all over Africa and just let them see and show them that regreening really helps them also on the ground and eventually also the climate. So, And climate is for African farmers uh, a bit abstract, but if you tell them that their farm will become more fair fertile and that is the case when you bring back trees or regreen your land yeah then you can really inspire them to start regreening how does that work on a logistical level in terms of the organization of just dig it are you are you then there's a sort of a project team and then there's a education campaign what's the what's the strategy there how do you how do you get the word across into into very very micro communities um yeah we have uh, indeed a programs team those are the ones who really are busy looking at the projects on the ground but we also have a fairly big uh, marketing and communication team Hmm. which are busy with developing campaigns and those are campaigns for um, the more western world I hate that word but I don't know how how to say it uh, in another way but we make campaigns for the more western world but also also campaigns for in Africa Hmm. so we have billboards we have TV commercials we we have we have had a, a radio program about one of our regreen techniques. It was broadcasted in one of our project areas, but also people outside the project could listen to it. Mm. So the, the, those are different ways how to reach also uh, people outside of the project area. And now it's mainly in our project countries, but we want to scale it up and also do it in countries where we are not active with our projects and with billboards and also TV commercials, radio campaigns, and we are also looking in more newer techniques, so uh, applications or mobile phones. A lot of farmers do have a mobile phone, hmm. so how we how can we use that? Uh, we have an SMS service. So those are really different ways to reach the farmers also outside of the project area. So that's really also the plan in the upcoming years, and we call that moving B. 
beyond programs. Mm. Because they are not in our own programs, but we want to move beyond our own programs and show other people in other countries that they also can act on climate change and regreen their own areas. And so for Just Dig It, the, the thought is stay local. I guess localize is a strange word when you talk about a continent, but stay local to Africa and then try to trigger other movements within other portions of the world? Is Just Dig It sort of as a philosophy staying on the African continent? Well, it's not really for a philosophy. I think it's just that we are staying there right now because we have a lot of expertise over there and because there's a lot of scaling potential. Hmm. And we are starting to focus also on other areas. Yeah, that's it's quite a lot. We are agreeing that there needs to be regreening everywhere in the world, basically. There are more dry parts and more parts that, that are potentially can be regreened at a large scale. So we really encourage that and we also make tools. We have made a tool that can also be used by farmers uh, outside of Africa. So that way we want to support also people yeah, regreening on other continents. But for us, the focus for now remains on Africa because that's already a big focus. In terms of the education campaigns, the um, my my wife is from Sri Lanka and there's a sort of heavy agriculture. Well, there's still a connection back to the land for, for many families, right? In terms of some agricultural knowledge or some sort of portion of the economy being linked back to agriculture. But the, um, the thing that became apparent to me there is there's these um, sort of agricultural centers which i guess a lot of countries have but in in you know countries that where the agricultural past is a bit more distant and maybe people are coming back to but these governmental agencies that deal directly with agriculture seem to be a heavy knowledge base for a lot of local farmers so in terms of seed banks in terms of troubleshooting local productivity or fertility issues of the land or um, to, to remedy soil imbalances and so forth these are the experts that they call upon right so for your radio campaigns the tv commercials the billboards and so forth is it an effort to create a complete packet of knowledge that you know people listen to and they have a full idea of everything or are you um, is it sort of a campaign that directs people to hubs of knowledge that then through guidance implement these things um that really depends on the campaign we do have campaigns more yeah like on a billboard you cannot tell people a lot right (laughs) so those campaigns we just state okay look we can bring back nature together and look at just or just forward them to indeed a knowledge hub but with for example our radio uh, radio program we recently broadcasted that was more really more in depth like every mm. every episode had uh, a specific topic about the regreening technique we were explaining and there were do's and don'ts and so that was really more uh, in depth about the regreening technique and also about resources and how they could apply it and was really with uh, farmers calling in with questions so that was really also interactive so that was really nice so it really depends on yeah on the type of campaign and the type of communication channel we use because on with such a radio program you have a lot of time to explain a lot but with a campaign on the television or a billboard you cannot yeah tell people a lot in 30 seconds or just in one on one 
billboard. So then we forward the people to more knowledge hub and forward them to our to us and to our local partner most of the time. So the mobile phone, the smartphone you were talking about, how has that started to shift things? I recall there's a, I think it was in Latin America, there was some sort of app that a lot of local farmers had where they could directly photograph, let's say they planted some yucca and it was starting to behave in a way that was anomalous. They could photograph it and the photograph along with a description would go to a network of agricultural experts and then they'd get feedback very quickly and then, you know, implement the suggested revisions. So for me, that was really interesting in terms of spreading agricultural knowledge on a global level to be able to access, you know, that kind of information network. How does the the mobile phone begin to shift for you? Because it sounds like there may be some avenues there that cut across media types, right, for you as as an institution. Yes, yeah, what we see is that uh, what I already said, a lot of farmers do have phones. Yeah. They do not all have smartphones. A lot of them just have an, yeah, an old school Nokia where they can uh, receive SMS text messages and that's it basically. They can call each other and they use them most of the time to call each other that they are on their way to visit one another. Mm. Do they have cameras on them? Like very uh, sort of, you know, low megapixel. The basic Nokia no, but what we see, and um, that's really an interesting area also for us, there is something in between the smartphone and the old school Nokia, and I forgot the name, that's not really smart of me, but there is a name of the, that that's a mobile phone, and it has, it has like some of the features of a smartphone, but it's less expensive and um, less high tech, but you can download a certain apps, so that's really nice. Hmm. and it's more low-key and those phones do have cameras and then they can also take a picture of their uh, crops or plants or whatever. Well, it seems that would be critical, right? If you want to spread knowledge across a network that they could photograph something and say, have I you know, dug enough depth? Is there something wrong with this? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. yeah true. So that's also something we are looking into, how many people do have those types of phones and how can we make it affordable for them or interesting for them to buy those phones Hmm. because that's a critical part because right now we do have an sms service and then a basic nokia is enough but then you can take any pictures and you can download an app where more information is coming and so that's something really that's critical yeah if you want to go that direction yeah there's this uh, documentary called Fools and Dreamers. It's uh, it's about a fellow, I think Hugh Wilson, uh, out of New Zealand. I think he's a biologist, uh, maybe botanist is the correct term, but he, he had a similar approach, I guess, where he had studied the landscape of this particular area of New Zealand for quite a period of time in his life and was particularly passionate about it. And there's this uh, yellow bush that I guess local farmers really dislike in terms of cattle ranchers and so forth, particularly maybe it's sheep i guess given it's new zealand but they really dislike this because it's sort of an invasive i don't think it's an invasive species but it's an invasive element where if you don't fight it back it keeps growing quite vigorously back into your pasture and he had an idea actually the best way to deal with this um, was just to let it grow and his goal for a substantial number of hectares where sort of a, a philanthropist venture capitalist i'm not sure the exact term but bought a significant portion of land within new zealand and they they had 
the dream of regrowing an old forest within that area, which was primarily composed of this yellow prickly bush. So his approach was actually to let this thing grow. And apparently as it grows, it provides really good ground cover that allows for larger scale species and trees to begin to take root. And then once the trees grow past and break the surface of the bush and begin to establish shade, the shade then uh, suffocates the bush uh, element. So they were able to regenerate a significant amount of old forest, I guess, within 20, you know, 20 or 30 years. And a lot of people, I guess, had the impression that they were planting these trees one by one by one. That was their process. And Hugh has this very interesting, again, I think it's Hugh Wilson. He says, you know, humans are very good at destroying things, but not so good at rebuilding, regenerating them. <laughs> yeah. And he, uh, he says, you know, if we were to try to rebuild the forest this way, it'd be impossible because you're talking about hundreds of thousands of trees to be planted and maintained and so forth. And so his approach was very much, why don't we use the existing ecological biodynamics and simply let them take their course with a little bit of stewardship embedded into it, which for, I think I saw encountered just to get prior to that, but it seemed like very comparable approaches in very different portions of the world. I think the one question I had that's been lingering, especially after watching the new David Attenborough film that talks a lot about these degradation of the wilderness in, in the world, I think it's called Life on the Planet, but he specifically talks about regenerating the wild. So with Just Dig It, is there, it sounds like you, you have multiple approaches, one that deals with sort of private communal land as well as some wilderness area. Is there, when you're dealing with larger and larger things on a continental level, are you trying to regenerate portions of the wilderness um, through this type of methodology? We are now mainly active on communal land, that's in Kenya, and in Tanzania it's more on land of farmers so that's a big difference uh, between Kenya and Tanzania in Kenya do, you do have a lot of communal land and in Tanzania there are a lot of individual farmers who have their own piece of land hmm. so we also have different approaches um, of regreening but uh, the areas we are active in in Kenya that's mainly communal land but this communal land is part of a corridor between two big wildlife parks Hmm. We also bring the green back over there to yeah to also bring back the wildlife because they travel a lot uh, in those corridors. So yeah, it's communal land, but also for the wildlife. Yeah. Is there any urge to get into the wild, the sort of terrain of the wildlands, in terms of regreening them? Because it seems like the same issues that are being dealt with on the communal lands are also an issue on on wildlands due to their. I mean, there's something about the natural order of things that's having quite a difficulty dealing with the changes of climate change, right? So there may be some element of stewardship that could be embedded within the wild yeah. that helps to rejuvenate them. Yeah, we we do have also one of our projects is uh, in the Ambroseli National Park in Kenya. That project is more based upon woodland enclosure, so making sure that elephants do not eat the young uh, naturally sprouting trees. So we have communal land, but indeed we do also do things in uh, wildlife areas mm. to make sure also over there because the climate change is also felt over there and the drought are also felt over there. What is different on those lands is that there's not a lot of grazing of livestock in those national parks and that's the case in communal land. So on communal land we have both factors of grazing management and regreening because the, um, we have both issues of overgrazing and also the drought and in the national hmm. 
wild parks, it's more the world and the wildlife who are eating mm. the little uh, sprouts. The wild overgrazing, is that the... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's the... Um, so you said that there's an interesting distinction. You said, that, is it Kenya that has more communal land and Tanzania that has... Why, why is that? Is that simply just a legacy of property ownership? Yeah, yeah, basically that's it. What's easier to work with? It depends. It's both good to work with, but because of that, we do have really different approaches in both countries because the buns are mostly uh, dug in uh, Kenya because there are big parts of communal land, so we can indeed dug tens of thousands buns in one area, and that's not possible in Tanzania because there is not a lot of communal land that big. Mm. Uh, so what we do in Tanzania, that's a total different approach than uh, digging the buns and harvesting rainwater. Uh, what we do over there is that we teach the farmers a specific technique to regenerate trees that were once there. So a lot of farmers did have a lot of trees on their land, but they use it for firewood or mm. to build their houses, but also because they looked at the more Western world and see our way of uh, farming and they thought, okay, they have clean farms. We also need clean farms. But of course, that's that's not the way how it works over there because they need the shade of the trees and they need the roots of the trees who are uh, allowing the water to infiltrate into the soil. You mean clean as in treeless? Yeah, in treeless, yeah. Interesting. So they looked at Western farming yeah. practices and tried to mimic... Yeah. Interesting. Huh. How do you do that? How do you regenerate uh, trees? Is it simply as planting them and, and waiting or is there a more intricate approach? No, what we um, what we do, because a lot of the trees, the strings are still there and the root system is also still there. So what you can see hmm. is that those trees are still growing, kind of growing, but they are growing in the kind of bushes. So they get a lot of little sprouts or branches coming out of the string and um, yeah, the turn in a kind of bush but because uh, the energy is going to all of those different branches the trees cannot grow back in a real tree anymore so what we do learn with farmers is uh, a technique called farmer managed natural regeneration mm. pretty a mouthful mm. <laughs> and it's called Kisiki uh, Hai I prefer that name uh, <laughs> and that means living strength so that's uh, that's a really easier to pronounce and it's uh, nicer to hear I think so we learn that the Kisiki High technique and this technique allows them or teaches them to cut down most of the branches coming out of the strings and keeping only two or three of the strongest branches hmm. and then the energy which is going from the roots into those branches only goes to those two or three branches which then have the chance to grow big again. Ultimately you uh, end up with one of those branches and what you see is that those trees can grow fairly quickly because there is already a root system and they so the root system can reach the also the deeper located water sources so that's really nice so yeah with what you see with new planted trees the roots still need to really yeah it's still really superficial and that's also the layer of the soil where most of the times water is lacking so yeah the upside of using the strings which are were already there is the root system that can access the also uh, 
uh, more deeply yeah. located sources. And you don't have to regrow a tree that way. The, or you don't have to regrow the roots, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, another really upside of these techniques is that you bring back trees which were already there. So you know that they were already adapted to the local climate. So you know that they can survive in the climate over there. So that's also, yeah, it just increases the survival chances of the trees. Have you heard of um, a Japanese lumber production technique called Daisugi? No, never heard of it. I think I'm pronouncing it. Yeah, so similar, like a similar practice, I would say. The, so the Western approach to lumber production, right? You grow trees and then you cut them down. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you cut them down, the root structure also dies with it, right? Typically in most of these lumber production trees. And so when you replant the tree, it seems like a lot of energy actually goes back into the production of the root, which in the end isn't for the lumber practice. So Daisugi, let me see if I'm pronouncing this right. Um, Daisugi. Uh, so the practice is you, you basically grow the tree and it has this, I think it's basically an extension of sort of bonsai practices and, and pruning. I'm not sure which came first, but there's this heavy trunk of a tree that then is trimmed in a way that allows for branches to grow vertically. And these branches are then pruned in a very specific way to have very vertical growth. So they're not allowed to deflect right or left and, and based upon wind, I guess, and, and sort of organic growth patterns, but they're trimmed and manicured and, you know, stewardship may be the right word there. But then to harvest lumber, they simply cut down the branches. So you have this main trunk of the tree that's still living. And once you cut down the branches, more branches sprout up. So they have uh, this regenerative lumber production method. That's <laughs> actually quite brilliant. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds a bit the same that they use the branches to, yeah, for production purposes and the tree or the main yeah. tree is remaining or the string. Nice. So one thing about, I guess, a, a question about indigenous vernacular knowledge. How close was this to being lost entirely in terms of buns, in terms of this kind of tree growth? If just it had started 20 years, 30 years later, would it have been too late to retrieve that? I don't know, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, did the did, did it start at the perfect moment, I suppose? Is there, um, like, the in terms of the retrieval of knowledge are you working with older generations and in terms of implementation of that knowledge is it younger generations or is it bridging a generational gap are most farmers of i don't know are they older are they younger what's the demographic that you're working with yeah that's really various it's not we work with the more older people most of the time the older people are also not always but they are like the head of the villages those are more the older people over there we work with them but we also work with the younger people because they work on the land and so it's it's really various it's not one demographic where we really focus on we really focus on the whole Mm. community and also on the children because they are the future so um, yeah, we also aim to teach them how to uh, maintain the land green. And is there? Um, are you witnessing a continuity of I don't know rural life or village life, or are you seeing for I don't know when you when you talk to kids, for instance, is there an urge to go to the city as opposed to maintaining sort of a, an agricultural lifestyle? Are you encountering those kind of shifts? 
I'm not sure about that. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, if you see the trends, you what you what you see is that most people want to stay where they grew up because they know the people and they know the area and that's where they were born and raised. But you can also see that when or they also tell you, okay, when there's no food I can harvest over here or nothing more for me over here, then I need to go to the village uh, to the more urban areas. So I think most of the people would like to stay, but if there's no more resources for them, they just feel the urge to go to the cities. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be the story of both rural life and small city life. We So we live in a city uh, called Segovia, which is roughly 20 minutes by fast rail away from Madrid. I mean, city of 50,000, 60,000 people. But it's a very similar story that's told here, as far as I can tell, in terms of if you talk to local Segovians, they say we'd really like to stay here. But in terms of jobs, economic opportunities, there's inherent limits. What, what I find actually quite interesting about, you know, sort of the work that Just Dig It's promoting as well as other agricultural-based organizations is it seems to be supporting the possibility of at least extending that kind of life into the foreseeable future by increasing productivity of land, by opening up new opportunities. But the really intriguing one is sort of this new realm of biomaterials where it requires an actual connection to an agricultural a productive hinterland and sort of knowledge hubs at the same time. Um, you know, in architecture, there's a lot of discussion about mycelium-based materials or, you know, biodegradable materials and so forth. But it seems like if you don't have the basis of this connection back to the land, at least somewhat active intellectually and productivity-wise, then that bridge is really hard to cross. So I think there's some really interesting stuff in that regard. There was a thesis student at Penn State who had actually done her final project on a similar issues. How do you maintain the livelihood of, I think it was in Kenya, actually, how do you maintain the livelihood of certain grazing populations and and how do you embed the dynamics of modern knowledge networks within that while still maintaining the knowledge base or knowledge networks of the past it had some very interesting potentials in that regard and i i think i had mentioned to them just dig it and because they were producing buns and so forth as a as a method of revitalizing the the hydrology and they obviously knew of of the organization in terms of growth of the of just dig it what's the there's often this fear if you get too big you're going to lose something of the magic of the small startup scale is there a conscious effort to sort of structure that growth in a specific way is there is there an effort to cap the size of the organization at a certain uh, number of you know whether the team uh, size or whatnot so that you can maintain this flexibility and malleability and and pace yeah we do i don't think there's a real hard cap of that's the maximum amount of people that can work for just dig it but yeah the, the goal is to remain fairly small because what you said it's way more easy to have a small organization because then communication inside a team is really yeah it's it's easier and also what you also see with all our bigger companies if you want to make a change or want to do a project or have an ID, and first that one needs to look at it, then that one needs to approve it, and then you need to go to all those kind of layers, and that's something we really want to prevent. So, yeah, the aim is to remain fairly small in our headquarters, but what we want to do is also open offices in Africa itself. Mm. 
so that we get just ticket offices in, for example, Kenya, in Tanzania, but also in more Western Africa and Southern Africa. So that's that's more where the growth will be. So of course there will be come some new team team members at the main office at the headquarters of Just Dig It, but it's not the plan that we will grow into a company with hundreds and hundreds of employees. But we want to grow it to grow Just Dig It in Africa. So we get local teams which do the local projects over there and have local project uh, owners and managers. And so mm. that's more where the growth will be. Do you have a, a branch in the UK now? Uh, yeah, we have. What's the difference of, I mean, what does the Amsterdam office versus the UK office, what do they approach differently? Yeah, we do not really have an, a UK office. Uh, one of our co- colleagues is, is based in the UK and he has a lot of, mm. he's from the media world so he had a lot of connections uh, over there so yeah he's our country representative of the uk so we do not have really have an office but yeah we have people over there who are running uh, our campaigns and who have the network to yeah show our campaigns on television on billboards on uh, radio etc are there any efforts to extend this into europe as a practical project uh, the um, so in spain for instance i know the degradation of soil is heavily discussed in terms of the sustainability of the you know the hinterland in the future and it seems like it's i mean in segovia you you sort of walk into the surrounding hilltops and you encounter something very very you know the topsoil is very minimal the bedrock is very close by and talking to some ecological historians they were saying it's sort of a post it started with the romans i guess in terms of changing the surrounding ecology into strictly cereal production these wheats and grains and so forth but it used to be much more oaks and acorns and you know these kind of my my uh, biology uh, species uh, vocabulary is very limited but it used to be more sort of a forest land that kind of productive landscape rather than these fields for human consumption is there any effort or ambition to breach into europe with some of these projects yeah what i said before right now the focus really remains on uh, africa for us but we are really supporting other regrading initiatives to yeah start regrading also in Europe because we also often get the question and we know the urge of regreening also in Spain. Yeah. We are really aware of it. But yeah, our projects will our own projects will really remain in Africa and our own focus will remain there. But what I said before, and that's maybe really nice also for you to look up, uh, one of my colleagues has developed uh, a tool which can also be used for farmers or other people who want to regreen in other areas. Mm. And it's called uh, greener.land I can email it to you uh, later yeah yeah that'd be great and um, with that too people can really see based on uh, the amount of rain on the amount of stones present in the area the type of soil they can filter on that and then you can see which techniques are suitable for the area you want to green in so mm. that's a really enhanced on um, too for also people outside of Africa to see 
start regreening themselves. So it, and it's all explained really easily and there are uh, photos and sometimes short movie explaining how the technique works. So we are, um, despite the fact that we are not going to have a project soon over there, we want to give people some hands-on material where they can start with and how they can start with regreening. No, that's great. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to launch some sort of um, connection with the, the city and sort of the surrounding, again, hinterland is, I don't know if it's a common word used in non-architectural or urban circles, but the sort of surrounding landscape, how to create a more support biodiversity, both within the city and beyond. And, you know, again, Just Dig It was one of these, probably one of the kernels of that kind of thought. One last question for you, Sine. How has how COVID impacted operations? At the beginning of COVID, um, one of our projects was on hold. There was the digging of the buns in Kenya because that was in bigger groups mm. and that was, wasn't was allowed anymore. So it has been on hold for two months, maybe three. But we have made, together with our local partner, we have made a protocol uh, to make the group smaller and make it safe for the farmers to dig the buns again. So the last three months, they have started started digging again so that uh, just continued and in Tanzania we work with, as I already told we work with individual farmers who regreen uh, their farm uh, so they regreen their own land so they do that individual so that just could continue because we yeah that wasn't in big groups so that was nice in that case mm. that was also the start of COVID was also the moment that we launched our road radio program and it was also in Tanzania about uh, regenerating the trees so that way we still could inspire and activate farmers to regreen so we definitely had different ways to still reach the farmers uh, despite the fact that we couldn't be there on the ground and also our local partners at that time couldn't be there right now uh, the both countries are more open are less strict so there has been a training of farmers already in tanzania also with enough space between the people of course and uh, the measurements were really uh, taking along but um yeah the regreening uh, luckily could go on mm. uh, despite uh, the covid measure uh, the covid yeah and for i don't know if this is probably a difficult question to ask but if there are organizations looking to build off of the model of just dig it what what advice would you have uh, um yeah that's a difficult one but also a good one yeah i think but one of the key things is to look for a good local partner. I That's really where we rely on uh, the knowledge of them and also their connections with the local communities. That's really something that's really, really important. So that's one. And also to yeah, just look into what are the possibilities of the land and what types of techniques could be used to regreen this land because that's really different. In Africa, it's really different from the Amazon, mm. for example, because those are two really different areas so it's also really good to have some research about okay in what kind of area do i want to start regreeding and what what are the possibilities and how yeah how is the land itself over there so 
I think that those are two, the two main things of starting a project, just looking good at the project area and find a local partner which can support you uh, well. Okay, Sene. Thank you so much. Uh, really, really nice to hear all the intricacies. I know I probably all of the questions aren't within your area of expertise, but thanks for supporting all of them. No, but it's nice. It's nice to, uh, it's also triggers me to think uh, a bit different outside of my niche, but uh, I hope that I uh, gave you enough information and that it was informative for you. Sometimes I didn't know exactly, but uh, yeah, hopefully you, uh, yeah. I think the the whole attitude of just dig it plus the projects is a very interesting blend of low tech plus large scale ambition plus you know this local plus international efforts combined together. It seems like you've avoided a lot of the pitfalls that many organizations have fallen into that have attempted such a thing. So it's it, I think it's nice to learn you know see what strategies you've applied and and see what can be learned from them. No, thank you so much. Yes, you're welcome, and uh, you also thank you. I- I uh, thought it was really nice. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, Sinu. Yes. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.